Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, it certainly was a news-filled afternoon yesterday with the Fed cutting uh, rates uh, by 25 basis points and then uh, the uh, Q&A and presentation by uh, Chairman Powell, which caused, I think, some uncertainty with uh, many investors in the marketplace to try to make sense of it. Uh, we welcome our next guest, uh, Christina Hooper. Uh, Christina is a chief global market strategist for Invesco uh, based here in York. Christina, you're joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. It's great to see you. What were your takeaways yesterday from yesterday's testimony and Q&A and all that? Well, there are a few key takeaways, Paul. First of all, it seems that the narrative is that the last rate hike of 2018 was a mistake, and we're giving that back. Um, but that it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to see any series of rate cuts from here. Maybe one more, but... Jay Powell was very clear in suggesting that this is an adjustment, not a trend. And so that speaks volumes, but it does also cause confusion in markets. I think the other key takeaway was that the Fed is confused because there are so many different data points swirling around that suggest different things. The dichotomy in the U.S. economy, strength in the consumer, strength in services, but of course weakness in manufacturing, which really mirrors what we're seeing globally. Um, also, just in general, we're seeing a strong domestic economy for the most part, but we have to worry about trade wars. And really, there is no playbook for trade wars. So a lot of people said that the Federal Reserve disappointed markets yesterday. Uh, you did see a sell-off in equities, a bit of a sell-off in bonds. Today we're seeing bonds rally, and we're seeing two-year yields come in uh, the most in a couple weeks. I'm trying to figure this out. Why? Well, I think there's always that visceral, knee-jerk reaction and then markets take time to digest information. So they didn't necessarily get what they wanted from the press conference. They seemed to get what they wanted from the actual decision, but stocks started to go down when the press conference occurred. And so it seems as though they were left feeling a little empty because Jay Powell um, insisted that this is more of an adjustment rather than a trend. Honestly, I, this feels like a relationship. You know, they wanted to hear more, <laughs> something more. What's, what's the future? Go on. Well, it is a relationship. Uh, <laughs> and, and luckily, though, um, Jay Powell has colleagues on the Fed. And so most likely we're going to see Vice Chair Clarita come out and, and uh, clean up some of the comments and comfort markets. Um, this is a relationship. So, Christina, is there anything that uh, happened yesterday or that will change how you guys view the marketplace? Maybe how you're allocating some capital for the remainder of the year. Anything change from yesterday? Nothing really changes, but it does suggest that we're likely to see more dollar strength um, and that uh, really the Fed has paved the way for other central banks to start getting more accommodative. So um, uh, on the margins, though, uh, really not a lot of change. Um, just uh, I would expect that stronger dollar. I would expect um, something of a tilt towards uh, risk assets performing well in an environment where the Fed stands ready to be more accommodative if it needs to. Um, certainly ending 
balance sheet normalization a bit early was a nod to the doves. Uh, so I think this is an environment that all else being equal favors risk assets. What about emerging markets, given the fact that you're expecting the dollar to strengthen? So emerging markets could uh, do well in this environment in that the Fed has removed um, one key headwind, which is balance sheet normalization. Uh, recall that was creating something of a liquidity suck for emerging markets. So I think that actually this could pave the way um, for, for um, emerging markets to perform better. So what, another news item that seems a narrative that seems to be have been addressed a little bit this week is trade. It appears that, you know, with the U.S. trade delegation going and then coming back uh, from Shanghai, that it appears that while there doesn't look like there's going to be a deal immediately, at least there's going to just kick this can down the road. And maybe this might even be a post 2020 election. Is that scenario from a trade perspective enough for the markets right now? I think it's enough. I think what we need to do, though, is watch for any signs of a deterioration in the relationship. But luckily, I think markets have um, begun to manage their own expectations with this. I think there was way too much optimism. I've always been a real pessimist when it comes to the U.S.-China trade situation. And I think now markets have come to, again, it's another relationship, have come come to accept um, diminished expectations for what could happen between the U.S. and China. However, if we see more tariffs, then I do think that will send stocks lower and really shake confidence. So we have the market on the couch speaking with the therapist right, <laughs> right. now. Um, I do want to know, you know, a lot of people were talking about Jay Powell and that his performance was not great. Do you agree? No, actually, um, what I would say is that, uh, you know, quite often it is hard to articulate a decision, uh, particularly one in which um, there are so many factors at play. I actually felt for him. Um, I certainly think Janet Yellen probably would have done more in the way of preparation and would have been very, very scripted in her comments to make sure there was nothing offhanded that was mentioned. But when you think about um, Jay Powell, he did try to articulate um, the kind of conflicts the Fed had in terms of what's looking positive and what's looking negative. And also, I think he really stood up for Fed independence as well um, by making that I'm statement. I'm sorry, but he, of course he does. I mean, he's not going to say, yeah, actually, we're going to cave to what the president says. <laughs> Lisa, nothing is a given in this environment. <laughs> so I actually do think that he had to, to stand up and yep. say that, and he did. Uh, and I think he was quite clear um, not giving in. Uh, he could have been much easier for him to say, you know, to, to really say nothing about this, but he tried to make sure it was viewed as an adjustment because he doesn't want to look like he's kowtowing to the White House. Uh, Christine, just about 30 seconds left. Uh, we're about halfway through the earnings season. What have you seen? Anything unusual? Uh, I've seen, again, that phenomenon that managing expectations can be a very good thing because while um, earnings uh, estimates were lowered, now they're coming in, meeting expectations, or in some cases, beating them. And that has created something of a positive sentiment in markets. Christina Hooper, thank you so much. We love having you on. Thank you. Thank you. Christina Hooper is Chief Global Market Strategist for Invesco, which oversees nearly a trillion dollars.
This has been a mixed second quarter earnings period for many companies, but there is one company that is doing a huge victory lap today, and that is Shopify. The darling of the Canadian tech world shares surging at 10% today to a new record after reporting better than expected earnings. We're lucky to have with us now uh, the chief operating officer of the firm, Harley Fickelstein. He's, uh, he's based in Ottawa, Ontario in Canada. Harley, congratulations and a very good earnings report. And obviously the shares are reflecting that. What was the main driver of growth in the second quarter? Uh, thanks so much for the kind words and, and, and thanks for having me on your show. I think a couple things are happening. Uh, one is I, I think people are beginning to realize what Shopify actually is doing. Um, I think for a long time we were known as this this very popular e-commerce provider to help merchants build uh, online stores. And I believe with the release of things like Shopify Capital, our point-of-sale offering, which is now in 100,000 stores, uh, the Shopify Fulfillment Network that we've recently announced, people are beginning to realize that we're actually building here is, is, is the first uh, global retail operating system for, for businesses, uh, both big and, 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 and very small. Uh, and I think part of, part of that is, is finally coming to, uh, people are beginning to realize that now after uh, sort of putting all the pieces together over the last couple of years. So Harley, in the quarter, I'm just looking at the quarterly numbers, uh, international is, is called out as an area of growth. What's driving the international growth for you guys? So I think Shopify, just by, by virtue of the fact that we were, we're online, you know, we're an internet company, we've always had uh, merchants in, 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 uh, in, a global, uh, in a global reach. We've had merchants in 175 countries, uh, even at the time of our IPO back in 2015. What's changed, though, in the last uh, 12 to 18 months is, is a couple things. We realized that even though we have merchants in places like Japan, Singapore, and, and Germany, and France, we didn't actually have true product market fit for those merchants, meaning the Shopify admin, where the merchants run their store, run their businesses, that was only in English. And last year, we, we translated it into a number of languages. Now it's, it's close to 19 languages. So merchants that don't speak English can also use Shopify today. We also went ahead and began to we did a deeper dive figuring out what are the nuances of what merchants need in each particular geography. So for example, in a place like Germany, uh, credit card penetration and credit card usage is not as high as in the U.S. Debit cards are a lot more popular. So beyond just the translation, we began to figure out what those merchants need there from a payment perspective, from an integration perspective. And then finally, uh, we also created and, and began to develop our international uh, Shopify partner community. We began going to these countries and cultivating relationships and partnerships with agencies and freelancers who not only refer merchants to Shopify, and I mentioned on the call, more than 22,000 partners refer business to Shopify in the last 12 months, but beyond that are now building applications and, and, and integrations for merchants in those locations that are particularly relevant to the needs of merchants in places like Japan or Germany or France. And uh, all, that, uh, all that has led to us having the largest mix of international merchants today that we've ever had. So the numbers are, are pretty impressive. Revenue grew 48% uh, according to the statement. And analysts were projecting a $350.5 million uh, revenue. Sounds amazing, right? 48% increase, yet it is the slowest in Shopify's four years as a listed company. And I'm wondering whether the slowdown is due to just the fact that you're maturing as a company or whether this has to do with just sort of the global macro backdrop and some of the slowing growth. 
you know, look, we, we think, you know, growing revenue at our size, almost 50%, we think is, is, is really great. Uh, we also saw GMV growth beyond 50%. So uh, GMV for the, for the second quarter was almost $14 billion, uh, which, again, is, is 51% uh, greater than last year. Uh, frankly, because we're so distributed and we're, we have merchants all over the world, um, you know, obviously some macro trends will affect us. But, but generally, we think that there's huge opportunities for us, not just internationally, but also with our existing merchants. We've been 800,000 merchants now and figuring out ways to expand what they use from us, uh, whether it's capital, we've given out more than $630 million of cash advances to merchants, helping them now with fulfillment and shipping, helping them with fraud protection. We think that not only can we get way more merchants, but the merchants we already have, we can also expand the services that we provide for them and, and, and make Shopify much more relevant to their, their, their business. Harley, what's the risk to your story? What's the bear case? Look, I think for a while people were a little nervous that some of the merchants coming on to Shopify uh, were small businesses and, and not all small, small businesses succeed. Uh, we know that. And actually, we think that that's okay. Uh, the way that we look at it from a business perspective is we want to create the largest top of funnel possible. We want anyone that has an aspiration or an ambition to build a, a startup or a, a business or a small, a small retailer to do so on Shopify. And we acknowledge not all will succeed. What's important to us, though, is that the ones that do succeed offset the cost of those that don't. And that certainly is happening with us, and we've, we've been seeing that for a number of years. And then the other piece of it is uh, retail in general is getting far more complicated. So now you're, you know, we're seeing companies like Instagram uh, create, uh, create new, new retail channels. We're seeing new marketplaces pop up. We're seeing accelerated checkout with things like Shopify Pay and Apple Pay. The more that retail becomes complicated for a small business, we think the value of Shopify increases because it, Shopify can allow you to sell anywhere you want, online or offline or on marketplaces or on Instagram, but it all feeds back to one centralized back office. And so I would say that even though complexity and, and the challenges of retail continue to grow, we continue to bend that lear learning curve. And, and that's really what we're focused on. We think there's an opportunity for us at a, at a macro global scale to be the entrepreneurship company. There isn't a company out there right now that truly owns entrepreneurship. And we think we have the best shot at doing that of anyone. Um, and, and so that's what we're focused on today. Harley, thank you so much for your comments and reviewing the quarter with us and uh, the kind of the outlook for the company. Harley Finkelstein, Chief Operating Officer for Shopify. Thanks for joining us. I'm just looking at the consensus numbers on the Bloomberg terminal, um, you know, looking for uh, the revenue grew about 60% uh, last year, going to grow uh, forecasted over 40% uh, this year and then over 30% uh, next year. And the company's gone from EBITDA negative uh, to forecasted EBITDA positive uh, in 2019. So the company uh, seems to be making uh, the pivot here and clearly uh, the stock up about 150% this year. Uh, investors clearly paying up for this stock. This is Bloomberg. I remember a time when people thought that high yield bonds were going to lose money, but instead they've just continued their gravy train this year. You see uh, returns of 10.5% for U.S. junk bonds year to date. The question, did the Fed just give them another leg to go here? Andrew Feltis is joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. He's co-director of Global High Yield for Amundi Pioneer, which oversees about $80 billion. Andrew? Wonderful having you. So what do you think? What's going to be the full year total return for U.S. high yield bonds? Well, that's a loaded question. Totally. Uh, but I think <laughs> that's the, what we do here. <laughs> the bulk of the spread tightening probably occurred, 
but defaults are low. You're still getting a pretty good yield. So I think we're about 10, 10 and a half right now. Probably you'll continue to clip that coupon. And I think it's an environment where choosing the right securities is going to matter a lot more. So we think we can add some value in that side. So 14%? Yeah, 14, 15 sounds about right. Wow. So, Andrew, what did you did you hear anything yesterday from the Fed and Chairman Powell that makes you change at all, shade at all, how you guys are looking at the market? So our, our concern is more about uh, the market reaction. I think we're consistent with what the Fed sees. The economy is in good shape. We don't see a lot of risks here in the U.S. Uh, internationally, there's more risks, and that seems to be hitting trade and other issues. But the curve is inverted, and ultimately that's going to cause banks to change their behavior, and that could lead uh, ultimately to a recession. Now, we think the Fed will probably cut again. But if the Fed was to keep that curve inverted, the longer it stays inverted, the more risk there is of a negative outcome. So at this point, we haven't changed our views, but we're monitoring the situation closely. So whenever high-yield bonds rally, there are the slews of nervous Nellies that come out and say, the end is nigh, and this means that everything is going to go to pot next year when we face a day of reckoning. What gives you comfort that we're not just setting ourselves up for some sort of bubblicious, frothy, beer goggle type behavior? Well, that's a great question, Lisa. Uh, the first thing that I'm most uh, comfortable with is we're not seeing a lot of excess activity. So when I do see risky bonds, they tend to be getting priced very uh, wide. So we're not underwriting a lot of bad deals. And you actually see the average credit quality is improving. Uh, there's more double Bs. There's less triple Cs. Uh, we don't see LBOs coming into the market, so quality is very high. Actually, the average credit rating is the highest we've ever seen it in the high-yield market. So when does that start deteriorating as uh, companies take advantage of this borrowing environment? So you'd see have to see triple Cs be able to come into the market, more LBOs, but also the pricing get much lower. And the problem is, is if you're doing a triple C and you got to pay 10%, you really can't refi a uh, LBO type structure and make money with that type of return. So it's really limiting the type of bad deals that are getting done in the market. So give us a sense of the new issue market. It seems like if I had any capital needs whatsoever, uh, you know, I would just love to access the high yield market given where rates are. Are you seeing a issuance pick up? So we're actually on track for a record month in July. Uh, about a quarter of that comes from one single deal, so that that's a a bit of a one-off. But generally, what was that deal? Uh, that was the Diamond Sports. Okay. So the, those are the Disney uh, regional sports networks. Oh, that's that Sinclair. That was the Sinclair. Yeah, Sinclair. you're speaking his language. Now we're talking. Yeah, exactly. And you got now that that deal went over great, right? Yeah. It went, well, all these deals have done uh, well. All the higher quality deals have done really well. Uh, so if you're a double B company, which means you don't have too much leverage, you're, you're one notch below investment grade, you can get financed at five to 6%. That's pretty aggressively. The guys that they'll ultimately lead to a bubble that lead you to lose money, and not just on a mark-to-market basis, but a permanent impairment, a default, those are the triple C guys. And those, you know, you monitor the amount of issuance in there and like what kind of pricing. And if people are not getting paid for default risk, that's when you start getting worried about a bubble. And we just don't see that type of behavior going on. The market's been very disciplined, so that gives us a certain level of confidence. How do you go about selecting securities in this environment since it does become that? Yeah, it's just rolling up your sleeves and doing hard work. So, so modeling the companies, talking to the management, understanding the business models, and then most importantly, you have to look at covenants, 
right? Because that's if something goes wrong, the covenants are there to protect you. And yeah, they covenants, don't matter anymore. That's what I keep hearing. Who and, cares about covenants? Covey like exactly, <laughs> and and that's become reality. But it's something you do have to pay attention to because in the next recession. Those type of things will matter. Any names that you can throw up? I'm not at this point. Secret sauce. Exactly. (laughs) So what are just give us a sense of kind of leverage? Where you know, I think about the media industry and that could you could borrow money at you know five six times leverage, maybe even a little bit higher. Where are we just in terms of leverage in your mind? So you know, first of all. yeah, the rate agencies have been pretty steady on this. So if I look at double B in uh, 2019, same type of average leverage that you'd see in 2009, 2008. So they, they have not done what they did in the housing market where they've just completely abandoned all, all standards. So it depends on the business. You know, if you are a less cyclical business, you know, like a utility, you can leverage a little bit more than you can. So single Bs are more in that five to six territory, while your average double B is going to be more in that three to four type area. So what's the argument if credit is good or not bad and the Fed is supportive of the market, why not just invest in stocks and and rates? Why go into high bonds? Yeah, so the, the beauty of high yield is you get paid to wait. So if we are moving sideways. Cue marketing pitch, go. (laughs) So if we move sideways in the economy, we're not growing profits, we're not growing the top line, these guys can pay their bills. So you'll clip your coupon and you make your six, 7%, which is probably pretty close to what you get in equity these days. For equities to outperform, and look, we want equities to outperform because it makes our job easier. It's another source of capital for our companies. So there's lower defaults when equities are going up. But equity guys need to grow that top line. They need to have improving profits. Margins are at great levels now, but it's really hard to expand margins. You know, now we did the tax re, uh, reform. That's not off the table. You really need to have growth. And we think you're going to get growth, but it's a much harder environment to get that profit growth. So high yield is something that will give you that coupon and really help balance your portfolio up. Anything else for you? I mean, this is fixed income. This is high yield right up. Basically, Paul's like, I'm not even going to engage. Just real quick, how long can this go on, the good times? This can go on until somebody makes a mistake. So whether that's the Fed, whether that's a fiscal policy, whether that's something on the regulatory front, on the trade front. uh, But until uh, uh, someone makes uh, a mistake, this can go on forever. This Probably won't, <laughs> but okay. it can. Music is still playing. <laughs> That's right. Andrew Feltis, co-director of Global High Yield at Amundi Pioneer. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, talking all things high yield. And uh, again, I think still, if what we're hearing from Andrew, still a constructive market. Um, constructive. 14 to 15% <laughs> returns in a year. That's, That's poised to be one of the best years since the, uh, the recovery from the financial crisis. Well, after a two-year slowdown, solar energy in America is apparently taking off again. To figure out what's going on there, we welcome Hugh Bromley. Hugh is a solar market analyst for Bloomberg New Energy Finance. He joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Hugh, thanks so much for joining us. Just give us, if you will, kind of the state of the solar energy market in the U.S. right now. Yeah, sure. So you really need to think about it as a couple of different markets. First of all, the rooftop market, homes and businesses buying solar, and that's really been slowing down the last couple of years. A couple of reasons for that. One, there was a little bit of uh, consumer uncertainty on, on the back of some regulatory change, mostly at the state level. 
uh, and then also kind of investor weariness following a couple of bankruptcies a few years ago, kind of investors pulling back, uh, questioning their their investments, the solar companies and saying, don't grow so fast, we want to see profits rather than unsustainable growth. Both of those in combination slowed down that rooftop market. In utility scale, it's all about subsidy. There was a, a, a threat that federal subsidy would have been removed a couple of years ago, a lot of builders as a result. Uh, and then it, when it fi- finally was extended, this wasn't enough projects to build in the last two years. So the market has slowed down just because there's not enough land ready to ready to move forward. Um, across the board, though, all those all those elements, all those market sectors are ready to kind of start tr- start rebounding now. Um, the 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 consumer uh, unease or uh, or uncertainty is certainly wearing off, and we're starting to see many many of the state markets, former former large solar markets, could recover. So uh, it's interesting to hear you talk about I mean, the hardware of this, basically the solar panels, uh, for example, and then also the utilities that rely on solar energy. And I'm just, I'm wondering how much the success or failure of these companies hinges on subsidies from the government or incentive programs versus just being economic in their own right. Sure. So it's a big question right now because those same federal subsidies that were thought to have uh, that may have expired a few years ago and were ultimately extended are now uh, st- stepping down over the next few years. So a lot of lobbying efforts underway again to extend those uh, those subsidies. Look, m- many players would argue they're not required anymore. Certainly for your large utility scale projects that uh, that, are, that are supplying you know supplying our bulk power needs, um, th- those projects or the energy from those projects could be competitive in many many cases without subsidy. Certainly, project financiers would love those subsidies to get out of the way. Uh, in many cases, they, do, they distort pricing, make deals much more complicated to, 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 to arrange uh, and to transact upon. Uh, for, in small scale and rooftop markets, those vendors, the large vendors in particular, uh, have business models that are, that are almost entirely reliant on there being a federal tax subsidy, tax incentive. Uh, and without those, they would need, really need to rethink uh, their business model. Talk to me about the commercial market. It seems like I, when I drive down the road and you, you know, go by an office park, you'll see this huge solar panel field i mean just huge even bloomberg down in princeton we have a great really cool solar panel field i'm not sure what it's called but um how prevalent is it in the commercial market are businesses adopting solar well, look, it really depends on where in the country you are. It's such a such the, the policies and incentives are mostly at the state level, and New Jersey being one of the richest richest states for incentive. You know, California, Massachusetts being some of the other really big markets, and therefore build, but build. You know, the number of uh, panels that are installed tends to boom and bust depending on the state of of state of state subsidy. Um, and for that reason, across the entire country, it hasn't been a big a big market. You know, maybe uh, you know, well under one percent, half percent of businesses at the moment have 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 solar installed on their facilities. Uh, there's a whole lot of room to, to grow, uh, but at the moment, pricing gets in the way. It is it is expensive, and that's partly because uh, partly because of these these incentives that are distorting pricing, uh, and partly because there is just um, there isn't the presence of of of, uh, of large national firms in in the states where there aren't generous state incentives. So uh, we're talking about companies, solar companies, let's give some names to this, SunPower Corp, uh, Enphase Energy. Are there others that we should be looking at? just off the bat. Yeah, sure. So those two firms have done particularly well recently on the back of partly regulatory change and, and a shift in technology preferences towards the, what they're offering. Um, they're both offering premium equipment and phase uh, sun power produces really high-end panels, the, the panels that go on your roof, and phase produces high-end inverters. That's a little device that clips onto the panel that sw- converts the power in from solar power into, into what you need in your home. Uh, they're doing quite well because the regulators have kind of shifted the market toward the particular product that Enphase is selling. 
further downstream, there's a lot of opportunity or, or companies that people like to watch uh, that, are, that are the installers themselves, the ones that finance the deals and structure, structure the deals and in many cases uh, have the crews that come, come to your home. You know, that's groups like Sunrun, uh, Sunpower as well as active in that space. Sunrun, uh, Vivint, the hedge fund hotel that really struggled <laughs> Vivint, for a while. Vivint Carry Solar and, uh, and, and Tesla, but Tesla's really Tesla. pulled back from this sector. Honestly, I, I do have to wonder how much the rebound that we're seeing this year uh, is due to just the degree of the pullback in the prior four years because a global right. index of solar stocks uh, maintained by Bloomberg has surged 30% so far this year, but it declined in four of the past five years. And I do have to wonder some of the positioning, how much there is hedge fund involvement and sort of crowding. Absolutely. Well, I said before that kind of investors pulling back from this space was, was a major factor here. Uh, certainly, Sun, uh, sorry, Tesla, uh, after acquiring SolarCity back in back in 2016, uh, really slowed down their business model. That the the contraction we've seen in Tesla explains a lot of the contraction we've seen in the entire solar market, but not all of it. Yeah. So the the market was still slowing overall. But really, where the growth has been is in small local firms. You know, two guys in a truck taking market share from these big national players. Not as sexy, probably for people looking for an easy share to buy, right. uh, but definitely compelling. Hugh Bromley, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Hugh Bromley is a solar market analyst with Bloomberg New Energy Finance, which does some incredible work uh, looking at all of the new energies that are coming up. Uh, really interesting to see some of the new technology. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz. It's one. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.